Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corte at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or at excorde.org. And today, November has come, so we're going to talk about the four last things. So the four last things are heaven, hell, death, and judgment. And these have been a topic of Catholic meditation and contemplation for years and years and years. In fact, Gloria Purvis was on our uh, campus recently, and she talked about when you do your nightly examination of conscience and go over the four last things and gave some advice. And I realized I don't go over the four last things every night in an examination of conscience. So I thought I'd devote some time about it today, uh, drawing on some things I've written over the years. Uh, but one thing that has come to my attention recently, so the Benedictines have a particular uh, way of understanding the four last things. St. Benedict in his rule says, have death always before your eyes. And here on the campus of Benedictine College, we have the um, monk's graveyard at the north end of campus. But in the center of campus, we have Raven Memorial Park, which is dedicated to ravens who have passed away while they were students here at Benedictine College over the years going back to 1858. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about heaven, hell, death, and judgment. Um, and I thought I would start by reading you a little bit of a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave, gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. That's the poem I actually found on a stack of my mother's things the morning after she died in her room where she died. Uh, and I think she had left it there on purpose to show us what she thought of death. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. And I love that my mother, uh, in her last days, when she knew her death was coming, she had ALS, uh, left a message saying she does not approve of death. She was all of those things. She was witty, intelligent, brave, and dead when I found the poem. And I think that she had the right understanding of death because I think a lot of us have the wrong understanding of death. Society tends to call death a passing away. They call it a passing over. There's all these euphemisms we have for death that don't seem to do it justice because when somebody dies, they didn't just pass over, they're gone. Uh, people are meant to be a composite of body and soul. These are not two things that happen to coincide. They are one thing. Your body is your soul and your soul is your body. And for those to be separated is a radical, ugly, terrible, unchristian thing, if I can put it that way. In the plan of God, says the compendium of the catechism, man would not have had to suffer or die without sin. Death was not part of nature, according to St. Ambrose. It became part of nature. God did not decree death from the beginning. 
In fact, it's only by an extraordinary grace of God becoming man and dying for our sins that death is even anything but a horror to us. There's a really powerful scene at the end of Toy Story 3 of all movies where the toys have fallen into an, an incinerator and it looks like they're all about to die. And Jesse looks over at Buzz and says, Buzz, what can we do? And Buzz's eyes tell the whole story. There's nothing we can do. We're all going to die. And instead, he reaches out his hand. And one by one, the friends reach out their hands to one another as a way of dying together and consoling themselves as they face death. The same thing happens at the end of Return of the King when Sam and Frodo are about to die. And um, Frodo says, I'm glad you are here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. So in each of those cases, there's something strangely comforting about facing death with the friendship of other people. Oddly, being at the side of a real friend when weighed against the end of all things actually seems to hold its own. This is why people visit grave sites. We don't give up on people just because they're dead. But the tragedy of death is that we eventually do stop visiting their grave sites because those who visit their friends' grave sites also eventually die. The only friendship that will ultimately survive death is the friendship we have with the one person who defeated death, Jesus Christ. This is the great truth of the crucifix. It's the ultimate, I am here with you at the end of all things. Jesus also reached out to the apostles to be with him on the night before he died, and it's probably the greatest shame in Christian history that they slept instead. And then when he was dying on the cross, the good thief reached out to him, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. But what should we think of someone like Lotso in Toy Story 3 who betrays the other toys right before their death? Or what should we think about someone who betrays Jesus' friendship? What do we think about people who turn against their friends and drive them to their death? This is where we get into the second last thing that I want to talk about, which is the judgment, right? Especially in our day, we don't tend to think of sin as that big of a deal we seem to have lost our sense of sin, and we have this vague sense that everybody's going to be okay in the end. We end people's lives with a celebration of life instead of a mass for their soul. And I like celebrations of life. I think there's something very powerful about stripping down someone's life to the details that were most positive about them. I think that tells a true story about them. So I'm not saying I'm against celebrations of life. I think they can be very beautiful. What I'm saying, though, is that there's something more going on. There's a judgment that's going to happen in each person's life, and that's what we need to pray for uh, at the end of their life. The classic story of the Last Judgment is, of course, Matthew chapter 25, where the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and he sits on his glorious throne, and all the nations assemble before him, and the veil is gone. He's no longer speaking a parable, he's talking about the nations gathering before the throne of God and this real judgment that will take place. Jesus says, Come you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. Ill and you cared for me. In prison and you visited me. Amen, I say to you, 
Whatever you do for the least of brothers of mine, you did for me. So the veil is lifted not only on Jesus Christ in the last judgment, the veil is lifted on the value of each human being. In Ephesians, St. Paul says, God chose us for heaven before the foundation of the world, destined us to be adopted children of God, lavished us with his grace, became man and died for us, forgave our sins, revealed the truth to us, giving the gospel. He paints this picture of mankind, which is truly exalted. And Jesus Christ paints a picture of mankind, which is even more exalted. We're him. We're equal to the Son of God. Whatever we did for the least of each other, we did for him. In life, it seems like the only person whose value we really recognize is our spouse, right? So Jesus Christ saw each of us and said, you're worth me giving my whole life to, coming to earth and leaving heaven for, and dying for eventually on the cross. Well, if anybody else saw April Beingester's true worth, they would say, I'm going to give my whole life to you, everything I have and everything I ever will have. All of my future days belong to you. Luckily, only I saw her true worth, but I did see her true worth, and I gave my whole life to her. Well, what Jesus seems to say in the last judgment is that we need to somehow see the true worth of every single person that we meet. And the true worth of every single person that we meet is enormous. So let me tell you a story I came up with about the last judgment, and we'll see if this works. Okay, imagine you're waiting to be interviewed for a new job, and because of the pandemic, the secretary asks you to wait on a bench under a tree outside, where another candidate is already waiting. A strange child comes up and starts talking to you with a loud, overly familiar, kind of rude manner, uh, demanding that you move. When you don't, he pushes you aside, stands on the bench where you were sitting, and climbs up the tree. He falls out of the tree and starts crying, and you feel glad because he got what he deserved for being such a brat. Exasperated, you head back inside to avoid the whole situation, and you notice that the other candidate that was sitting outside is rushing to help the child. Inside, you find your potential boss standing by the secretary. Your interview is canceled, he says. I'm going to hire the other candidate, the one who's outside caring for my autistic child not the one who swore at him and left him on the sidewalk injured. Well, this is the situation we're in. We're waiting for that interview from the king of the world who's going to have one question for our job interview for heaven. That question is, when we saw his image and likeness all around us in other human beings, did we shrug them off as annoying or did we actually serve them as somebody who deserved mercy? When this happens to us at the end of our life, we won't just not get the job. We'll hear what Jesus said in the last judgment. Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. A stranger and you gave me no welcome. Naked and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison and you did not care for me. That's what is at stake that's what judgment is all about. If you read the entire chapter 25 of Matthew, you'll find a number of reasons that people are condemned to hell. Each of them is a sin of omission, not using your talents as you should, not keeping your oil, 
going as you should. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lists sins that lead to hell. He says, hatred leads to hell. Anyone who calls his brother a fool is liable to hellfire. He says, lust and greed can lead you to hell. He says, theft and violence can lead you to hell. He says, it's better to cut off your hands than risk your whole body ending up in hell. This all makes perfect sense. If not serving our brothers and sisters can lead us into hell, then certainly harming them and ourselves will do the same thing also. So in order to survive the last judgment, we have to recognize Jesus Christ and his image in those around us, especially in the poor. The more we know Jesus, especially in the Eucharist, the easier it is to do this. As Mother Teresa put it, the holy hour before the Eucharist should lead us to a holy hour with the poor. But if we spend our money and our time on our own comfort, our own entertainment, our own status, and make ourselves the center of the universe, we aren't putting Jesus at the center of our lives and the judgment will not go well for us. There's a story that came out in the media a few years ago that um, said that Pope Francis denied the existence of hell. Well, that's not true. Pope Francis talks about hell kind of often compared to most uh, priests. He told the mafia in 2014, convert, there's still time so you don't end up in hell. That is what awaits you if you continue on this path. And then he told us that it's not just mafiosos who have to worry about hell. In 2016, he said, The danger always remains that by a constant refusal to open the doors of their hearts to Christ who knocks on them in the poor, the proud, rich, and powerful will end up condemning themselves and plunging into the eternal abyss of solitude, which is hell. Right. So his vision of hell is very much like what we described earlier. Uh, If you're not serving the image of Christ in those around you, you will go to hell because you're rejecting Christ himself. In fact, Dante imagines at the very depths of hell that the people who betrayed their friends will be stuck in the depths of hell with Satan. There's another way to think about the judgment, and that's to realize that it's not our faith or our great intentions or our loving feelings toward Christ that will save us, but actually serving others. There's a great story that Jesus tells about a man who had two sons. He came to the first and said, Son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son said in reply, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. The man came to the other son and gave the same order. This son said, Yes, sir but then did not go out and work in the vineyard. So Jesus asked, which of these did the father's will? And they answered the first. So Jesus said, amen, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. When John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. Yet even when you saw that, you did not change your minds and believe him. So when Jesus does that, he speaks of a phenomenon that's common right now with Catholics. Often we Catholics spend a great deal of time learning how to say all the right things. We learn how to correct every theological, ecclesial, and political question. We learn how to understand our faith forwards and backwards, but we never actually do anything with our faith. We never actually go out and serve others with our faith. Uh, 
John Henry Newman in his Plain and Parochial Sermons has this very powerful sermon called Profession Without Practice. And he has another one called Knowledge of God's Will Without Obedience. And he says, when you go before God's judgment seat and there plead that you know the truth but have not done it, how will it be taken? Out of your own mouth will I judge you, says our judge himself, and who shall reverse his judgment? Aristotle pointed out the same thing. What we do defines who we are, not what we say. And God has given us a terrible freedom in what we do. The Catechism says, Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. The Father in Jesus' story doesn't give the first on the benefit of the doubt and say, thank you for being so positive and being so wonderful. He doesn't give his good intentions any credit at all. And he doesn't actually hold it against the second son that he said, no, I'm not going to do it. All he cares about is what the sons actually in the end did. And the son who did the right thing is rewarded. The son who didn't do the right thing isn't. End of story. For the record, Jesus says the same thing over and over and over again. He says in Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father. He says, everyone who listens to these words of mine and acts on them will be building his house on rock. Uh, Those who don't are building on sand. He says of Christians, not that you'll know them by their blog posts or by their social media posts, but by their fruits you will know them. What did they actually do? He says that he'll Come back and surprise us like a thief in the night, and blessed is that servant who his master finds on his arrival doing his will. It's safe to say that Jesus actually means it, that we actually have to do what he asks in order to survive the judgment. What will happen if we don't? Well, hell will happen if we don't. Here's another story to think about judgment. Imagine a celebrity who is your friend invited you into their house and said, I want you to house it for me for a month. And you felt very honored. You took up residence in their house. And at first you treated things very carefully and with respect, but eventually you got careless and let things run down. And then maybe you got mean and started to do terrible things in the house. Maybe you ripped up their couch with the kitchen knife. Maybe you poured oil on their rug. Imagine you messed up their house in some significant way. Well, what would that celebrity do when they came back? They would no longer consider you their friend, certainly, and they would kick you out of the house for sure, right? Well, this is exactly what we do with God. God gave us care for his house And he didn't just give us care for his house. He gave us the abilities that we have to treat his house with respect. He gave us our talents, right? This is what he did with Lucifer. Lucifer was this angel in heaven. Lucifer means light bearer. So he was apparently given this major task. He was the morning star, right? He was meant to bring light to the universe. And what did he say? He said, I will not serve. And instead of using the talents for God, he used them for himself and against God and trashed God's house, if you will. Well, God said to Lucifer, well, you're out, right? You send him to hell for eternity. And this is exactly what God will do with us. 
Uh, my wife and I, as I've mentioned before, teach confirmation classes here in Atchison, Kansas. And in one recent class, I, I started to talk about hell and I called it H-E double hockey sticks. One of uh, my students raised his hand and said, uh, Mr. Hoops, my mom says hell is a real place and it's only the devil who doesn't want us to call it hell. Uh, and I, he's absolutely right. Over the last several years, people have stopped talking about hell, and I think that's a real poverty. As a matter of fact, uh, Pope Francis says we should talk to even children about hell. He said people will object that, Father, this will frighten them. He said, well, it's, a tr- it's true. If they lead a sinful life, they will end up in hell, and you have to warn them. In fact, Our Lady of Fatima is the patron saint of people who talk to children about hell, right? Uh, She talked to the shepherd children who she visited in Portugal about hell. In fact, she showed them a vision of hell, which deeply rattled the children and changed their personalities in some cases. It's important to note that first she talked a lot about heaven, and she talked a lot about virtue, and she talked a lot about the victory of the Immaculate Heart. But then she shared with them a vision of hell. St. John Paul II said, Jacinta, one of the children, was so deeply moved by the vision of hell that she found no mortification or penance too great for sinners. St. Lucia was another of the children in Portugal who saw Our Lady of Fatima. And she said, hell is a reality. It's a supernatural fire, not a physical one. She begged priests to continue preaching about hell because our Lord himself spoke about it so often in sacred scripture. She said, God does not condemn anyone to hell. God gave men the liberty to choose, and God respects their human freedom. This is what the catechism says. The catechism says that our freedom is so real that we have the ability to choose love, which is to be godlike, or the ability to choose hell, to choose to reject God forever. So hell is the bad news of the gospel, the flip side of the good news. But don't forget that there's also good news. Heaven and hell are interrelated. My daughter took a comparative religions class and came back and said, I want to be a Unitarian, Dad, because she realized the the worth that was in all the other religions. And she said, are all these other religions really going to hell? And I said, well, no, not necessarily. I said, you have to think about it in a totally different way. Hell is not God condemning people to hellfire because they believed the wrong thing. What actually happens is that when people die, they will see Jesus Christ in heaven, right? We know what he'll look like because the book of Revelation tells us. He'll either look like a lamb who was slain, which a Catholic will recognize right away as a Eucharistic symbol, or he'll appear on his throne you know, the guy with the beard that we know is Jesus Christ will be there. What will we do when we see him? Well, we have to pray for Christians who were baptized into Jesus Christ, but did not accept the fullness of the Catholic faith. Because if they see Jesus, maybe garbed like a priest or at an altar in some kind of Catholic way, they might reject him if they don't have it within themselves to accept the full truth of Jesus Christ. We should pray for Jewish people. Jewish people believed in Christ as someone who would come. But if they see Jesus Christ in heaven and they've convinced themselves and committed themselves to rejecting this particular Messiah, then they might be in trouble. 
We should pray for Muslims at that moment. They've taught themselves that Jesus Christ is uh, blasphemy, that you can't say God became man, and that God is entirely other, and that all they have to do is surrender to him. So when they see Jesus Christ as a man and God and the same person in heaven, we hope that they'll accept him because they've been taught not to, but we pray that they might. Or you have to pray for Buddhists. Buddhists seek to have this kind of experience of nirvana, this kind of oneness with the universe. They don't think of God as a person who they will meet. So when they see Jesus Christ in heaven, they will have a choice to make. Am I going to accept this or not? When we meet Jesus Christ in heaven, he's not going to judge us based on our membership in a particular church. He's going to be there inviting us to love him, and we will have become the kind of person who loves him or not. The truth is many Catholics also won't run into the arms of Jesus. I love how John Henry Newman describes heaven. He says, heaven is a place where saints live, where there's something like a liturgy forever and eternity. And people who have spent their lives disliking saints and disliking liturgies and disliking being in church will look at heaven with distaste, and God won't have the power to compel them in their freedom to come and spend an eternity in church. If you become the kind of person who doesn't love church, you will become the kind of person who doesn't love heaven. Because above all, heaven is an encounter with Jesus Christ. It's an encounter with the king of the universe who lives at the side of the Father. And we are either going to live our life such that we want to be by his side, or we're going to live our life such that we don't. Well, we're going to be called back to our true home, which is in heaven. And if we haven't lived our life such that we love the things of heaven, that we're not going to be happy in heaven, and we're not going to want to go there. But it's important to realize that heaven won't be something foreign to our experience. Heaven is going to be more home than the home we have now. The whole universe will be renewed and liberated once and for all from every trace of evil and from death itself in heaven, says Pope Francis. Heaven is not an annihilation of the cosmos and the things that surround us, but a bringing of all things to their fullness of being, truth, and beauty. Heaven will be something that we are made for, something that feels very natural to us. I love how Jesus describes heaven. He says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. So we can think of heaven as a dream house. Paul says that heaven is a building from God, a dwelling not made with hands, but a dwelling eternal in heaven. The fathers of the church say the same thing. Heaven contains an abundance of mansions, which are ever ready to receive you. Uh, St. Augustine says, he means evidently that there are many buildings built especially for you. So heaven is, in some sense, a dream house. It's, it's a house that is more suited to you than any place you've ever lived on earth. In fact, the joy of heaven is that you'll be at home at last. I love how Father Robert Spitzer writes about this. He speaks about the transcendentals beauty, truth, and goodness, those things which are true of God, but also true of humanity, those things will be, which will be true forever. 
We want beauty, but we never feel like we have enough of it here on earth. Well, heaven will be filled with beauty. We want goodness, but we always hunger and thirst for more of it here on earth. Well, heaven will be filled with unconditional goodness. We want love, but we never feel fully loved here on earth. But heaven will be filled with unconditional love. And especially, we want to go home. So his nickname for unconditional being is home. He says, being and home are the same thing. Human beings seek a perfect harmony with all that is, he wrote. They not only want to be home in a particular environment, they want to be at home with the totality, at home in the cosmos. Have you ever felt as a child or an adult a sense of alienation or discord, a deep sense of not belonging, he asks? What what you're looking for is home. I remember my mother used to say, I wish I was home. And I'd say, Mom, you are home. And I always figured she meant she wished she was back in Mexico where she started out as a child. But now I realize, no, she was longing for ultimate home. And our ultimate home is heaven. Because as St. Paul says, our final citizenship is in heaven. One way to think of home is to think of it in terms of nostalgia. I like to think about Christmases I spent as a child. And I remember this vision of me in my living room. I can picture the living room. We had this old Firestone record Christmas album with Bing Crosby and Nat King Cole on it. And that's playing when I think of uh, my Christmas. And I am lying down under the Christmas tree, looking up through the branches at the lights. And this feeling of completeness and of joy and of peace is what I associate with that. Well, if I were actually to go back to that moment and relive it, I'd probably find that it wasn't at all the completeness and joy that I've given it. Nostalgia does that. It takes an experience that we had and strips all the dross away from it, all the tension that might have been in my family at the time, all the chores that I still had to do that day, all the arguments that may have been happening between my brothers and sisters or my mom and my dad. It takes all of that negativity away, and it leaves the core of that experience stripped of all the negativity. Well, that's what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is going to be like the core of our experience of peace, joy, and love with all the dross and all the negativity stripped from it. It's going to be nostalgia only in the future and in the present rather than only in the past in things that are no longer that we can never reclaim. You know, the church has a shortcut for thinking of heaven, hell, death, and judgment every day. It's the liturgy of the hours where literally in the morning, You greet the new day as if it's a new creation. During the day, you talk about the battle with temptation and Satan that comes up, especially at the noonday hour. And in the evening and night prayer, the church very literally in the liturgy of the hours focuses on death and how your life will end. So how to sum all of this up? Death, judgment, hell, and heaven. Well, think of it this way. Every person you meet is made in the image and likeness of God. As C.S. Lewis says, 
If you meet them a hundred years from now, you would either be tempted to worship them because they were so glorified in heaven, or you'd flee from them in terror because they're so horrible in hell. Nature is fleeting. We will outlive it, C.S. Lewis wrote. Even when all suns and mists are gone, each one of us will still be alive. We will outlast everything that we see. We're not a blip in nature. We're the one permanent thing we see. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.